At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. Let's continue to worship God by opening the scriptures together. If you remember uh, from the last few weeks, we are in the book of Lamentations, the book of Lamentations. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, um, you remember our strategy for getting there is to crack it right in the middle and you will probably hit the Psalms or Proverbs and then begin to work your way rightward. And you'll hit Jeremiah, which is a big prophet, over 60 chapters. I'm sorry, Isaiah, you'll hit over 60 chapters. Then Jeremiah, over 50 chapters, so it's easy to find. Lamentations is snuck right after Jeremiah, just five short chapters. If you hit Ezekiel, you've gone too far. And we are in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. That's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Lamentations chapter 3. Verses 1 through 24. But I want to, as we often do, set the context for where the book of Lamentations falls within the storyline of the entire Bible. Um, Do you know that? Do you know that the Bible is a story? It has a beginning, middle, and end. It has a start, and then tension, and then climax, and then resolution. It is just like any other story, except it is the story Um, But I want to help set Lamentations within the context of that story. So I put my Microsoft Paint skills to use once more and came up with an eight easy steps to understanding essentially the entire timeline of the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament. Um, So here we are. You see there in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, But tragically, God's creation was not treated As it should have been. And we, as his creations, did not treat him as we should have. Um, We experienced this sad reality the Bible calls sin. But graciously, God quickly began to unfold his promises of salvation. That he was not going to leave creation undone and broken. But he was going to begin to work out a plan of salvation. And he did this initially by making promises to a man named Abraham. Abraham's family becomes a nation uh, through his descendants multiplying. Um, This nation that was known as Israel, primarily, initially, known as Israel. Eventually, by the end of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God's people are in Egypt. Eventually, by the start of the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, they are oppressed and enslaved within Egypt. Egypt takes advantage of them. But God raises up a man named Moses who leads them out of exile in Egypt back to the promised land where God initially intended for them to prosper, back to Canaan. Then things go southward again. Joshua helps establish the people within the promised land, but you read the book of Judges and it is no less than X-rated. Things go way sideways within the book of Judges. And so God, in order to counter this issue, begins a monarchy under King David. Saul was the first king, but he didn't work out. And so quickly he's replaced by King David, the Davidic monarchy. 
Um, this happens in First and Second Samuel, those books of the Bible. But sadly, just like Adam failed, just like Saul failed, David falls. And there's division and decline within the Davidic monarchy as well. David's grandson is all it took. David had Solomon, Solomon had Rehoboam, and only within the third generation of the Davidic monarchy, there is a civil war. And God's people are divided north against south. The southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was, was known as Judah. And the northern kingdom kept the name Israel. So there's a northern and a southern kingdom. Eventually, the empire of Assyria demolishes the northern kingdom, Israel. And eventually, in 586, the Babylonian empire wipes out and sends into exile the southern kingdom, Judah. And the prophet Jeremiah ministered during the time leading up to the Babylonian exile. And as we, best we can tell, he also added to his prophecy these five laments, lamenting what had taken place in the Babylonian captivity or the Babylonian exile. And so that's what we have. Five different lamentations taken place during this tragic event in 586 BC. And we have reached the third lament. We're actually going to spend two weeks in this one. It's a little longer, as you can tell. We're going to study the first half of it. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. 
But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am at the end of my rope. Have you ever said that phrase before? It's an interesting phrase. We say it when we feel like we have got nothing left to give, when we feel like we have no ability to move forward. I am at the end of my rope. And apparently, according to Professor Google, this phrase originates from the experience of an animal who is tied to a fence or a stake in order to graze in a specific area. And the animal could only feed as far as the rope would allow it. But once the animal reached the end of the rope, they ran out of resources. And so from there, the phrase began to be used to describe any situation in which we feel like we have reached the end of our resources, when we have reached the end of our ability to move forward. These are times when we're so drained and so depleted, we feel like we just can't continue. When I think of times like these in my own life, I think of seventh grade. Man, that year was a doozy. Middle school, puberty, acne, girls. I also think of my first year at university, away from home for the first time, away from mama for the first time, trying to reestablish myself, but just totally lost. But a little more recently, I think of a string of job rejections I received in 2015 and again in 2016, And again in 2017. 2015, I was living in Louisville, but began as an interim pastor for a church in Cincinnati. And it was going well. People were enthusiastic about my preaching. They were grateful for the help I was providing. And it started to be mentioned by different individuals, hey, why don't you become our permanent pastor? And we start getting visions of moving to Cincinnati. You know how it goes. You start dreaming. You get your hopes up. But months go by. Meetings go by. And eventually I hear the words, you're not our guy. What a gut punch. So 2016, I'm introduced to a new church. I do a couple of interviews. They have me up to preach a few times again. Positive responses. Again, feeling good. Hopes are up. And then this church calls my job references. One of them being my current pastor at the church I attended at the time, still living in Louisville. And he doesn't recommend me for the job. And so again, I hear the words, 
you're not our guy. And now, not only am I feeling rejection, but I'm feeling betrayal. And so at this point, you said, I said, you know what? I'm going to change strategies. I'm sensing a pattern here. I'm going to stop trying to be a lead pastor. I'll look for an associate role and just kind of ease my way into this calling. So 2017, a church finally hires me to be an associate pastor. But lo and behold, about four months into that position, the lead pastor at the church that hired me left for another role. And so I'm filling in a little bit more, filling in for some of the leadership vacuum that he's left behind, preaching more, doing different things. And again, it's going well. People are enthusiastic about my preaching. They were grateful for the help I was providing. And it started to be mentioned to me by different individuals. Hey, why don't you become our lead pastor? So again, I start getting visions of moving into this role. You know how it goes. You start dreaming. You get your hopes up. But meetings happen. Conversations happen. Decisions were made. And once again, I hear the words, you're not our guy. And I'm like, God, why? I took this associate role to avoid this whole thing, and here I am again. Rejected, drained, depleted at the end of my rope. And the truth is, all of us face moments like this in our lives. Moments when we feel like we have nothing left. Moments when it seems like our world is falling apart, nothing is right. Moments when you feel so defeated that you feel hopeless. And it's in that place that the questions emerge, how do I go on? Where is God? Am I alone? What does the way forward look like when darkness fills the present? Well, this morning as we look more closely at Lamentations chapter 3, we are introduced to a man who is experiencing an end-of-his-rope episode. And he refers to himself simply as the man who has seen affliction. He hasn't just heard about affliction. He has seen it. In other words, he hasn't just heard about the pain of infertility. He's seen it. He hasn't just heard about the grief of losing a child to an untimely death. He's seen it. He hasn't just heard about the agony of cancer. He's seen it. That's what he's communicating when he says, I am the man who has seen affliction. He is up close and personal with suffering. Of course, for him, it was this specific historical circumstance of the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. But look at what he says resulted from him having experienced this devastation. Look at verse 18. He says, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope. 
from the Lord. The affliction of everything he'd been through had caused his endurance to perish. It caused his strength to perish. It caused his resources to dry up. He was at the end of his rope. And right along with losing his endurance, his strength, and his resources, he also lost his hope. You know, it's one thing to lose all your strength, but it is another thing to lose hope that you'll ever get your strength back. That's where he's at, hopeless. But then look just a few verses later, verse 21. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So how does a man who has experienced so much pain go from a place of hopelessness to hope? How can in just three verses, verse 18 to verse 21, how can he go from having no hope to then feeling this awakening of hope within him? How does he move forward at a time when his resources are gone? Well, Lamentations 3 helps us answer these questions, not just as it regards the author's experience and the author's story, but also for our own experiences and our own stories. And he's going to model for us, he's going to instruct us in the truth that lament allows us to hope. Lament allows us to hope. Often when we are in the worst moments of our lives, when we feel most hopeless and drained, we can begin to wonder how we could ever move forward or if we will ever experience hope again. But the author encourages us by his journey that hope is possible in the midst of intense grief and suffering. And lamenting enables us. Lamenting allows us to truly awaken hope within us. So as we continue, we're going to see two clear things we can do when we're at the end of our ropes. Two things we can do to lament and thus awaken hope within us. First, acknowledge your affliction. Acknowledge your affliction. So one of the things that you notice about chapters one and two of Lamentations is that those laments are corporate. The writer uses the pronouns we and us. But now in chapter three, he's less corporate and more personal. And instead of using the pronouns we and us, he starts using the pronouns I, me, my. So listen again to the first few verses, verses one through four. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day. He has made my flesh, my skin waste away. He has broken my bones, and on and on it goes. So in chapter three, he really owns this lament for himself. He makes it personal. He individualizes it. And so he acknowledges his affliction in a deeper way. And we have to point out just how brutally honest all of this is. I have to think that if we read these words anywhere else but scripture, then we'd think, man, this is sacrilegious. 
This is indecent at best and blasphemous at worst. I mean, God is against you. God drove you into darkness. God melted off your skin. God broke your bones. In the first set of these verses, he's likening God to a harsh shepherd. A harsh shepherd who doesn't lead his sheep into green pastures and buy still waters, but a shepherd who mistreats and abuses his flock. In verses seven and nine, he moves on from the shepherd metaphor and he likens God to a jailer. He says, he walled me in. He weighed me down with chains. He blocked me in all around. And in verses 10 through 13, he says, he moves on from the jailer metaphor and he likens God to a predator. Verses 10 through 13, he's a bear lying in wait to attack me. He's a lion hiding on the prowl. He's a bow hunter set to shoot me through. So the author's feeling beaten. He's feeling imprisoned. He's feeling hunted. And then in the next verses, he explains, these experiences led him to be mocked by onlookers. These experiences led him to be bitter and anguish. His soul lacked peace, his body lacked endurance, his heart lacked hope. So in all these ways, he's acknowledging his affliction. He's not holding back. He's putting it out there. He's owning it. This is what I've been through. This is where I'm at. This is what I feel. You know, we're not part of a church tradition that has confessionals. But I nevertheless do relatively often get to hear honest expressions of where people are at in their journeys through life and in their walk with God. Just this past week, a man was sharing his experience with me and he lamented, quote, I am so sick of conservative Christianity. The hypocrisy, the lack of love, the shallow, superficial relationships, CT, I'm sick of it. I think of another situation, just a woman at the end of a rope. And she said, CT, I kind of hate God right now. The disappointment and the loss and the frustration, I hate. Now, you hear things like that, and there can be a temptation to try to fix it, you know? Okay, so you hate Christianity. Well, let me tell you about the nature of sin. God's people still have remaining sin, blah, 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 blah. Or, oh, you say you hate God because of your suffering. Well, let me tell you about God's sovereignty and purposes and glory and blah, 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 blah. Try to set them straight, you know? But as I listen to these people, I just wanted to remind them that it was perfectly okay for you to feel that way. It is perfectly biblical for you to feel that way at times. And there will be times to wrestle through the questions, but for now, it was okay just to be angry and to be sad before God. And that God would meet them in the midst of their affliction as they were honest with God about the pain that they had experienced and acknowledged their affliction. Do I want them to hate Christianity? 
Do I want them to hate God? Of course not. But I do want them to be honest. And so does God, apparently. Because that's what we've got recorded for us in God's word right here. Brutal honesty. Acknowledging his affliction. So think of it this way. Imagine you have young kids. Maybe you don't have kids at all, but imagine at least that you are the parent of kids, four, five, six years old, and imagine that you just had the worst day, just a terrible day. The car mechanic you hired ripped you off hundreds of dollars. You found out a good friend and their spouse filed for divorce. One of your closest coworkers is caught fudging the numbers. They're fired on the spot, and it's just like this weirdly difficult day. But the day is coming to an end, and you pick up your child from preschool or elementary school. They buckle up in the back, and on the car ride home, you just like let it all out. The car is like your confessional booth, and your kid is the priest. You just vent and share your complaints and your emotions and your thoughts, the theft, the divorce, the firing, just everything that it brought up in you, you let out before your child. Now, if you're like half human, then you know that you would never do that to your kid because a child can't hold that kind of space for you. A child can't carry that kind of burden with you. They can't interpret the emotions. They can't process the facts. It would just be total overload. But here's the good news, friends. God is not a child. God can hold that kind of space for you. A space where you can be as raw as you need to be. And God can carry every kind of burden with you. God can take all of your emotions, all of your thoughts, all of your compliments. Because, friends, God is not just out here looking for happy, clappy Christians dressed up, cleaned up for Sunday morning. No, he's looking for honesty. He's looking for transparency. He's looking for openness and truth. The same kind of honesty and transparency and openness that we see in Lamentations chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, in prayer before God, Acknowledge your affliction. Truly awakening hope out of hopelessness starts with acknowledging your affliction before God. Secondly, the thing the author models for us is remembering your God. Remember your God. He doesn't stop at acknowledging his affliction. He doesn't sit forever in the truth of his pain and hopelessness. Eventually, there's a shift, and he remembers some key truths about who God is. So let's see how this shift takes place within the text itself. Verses 19 through 24 again. He says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, My soul remembers my afflictions, and it is bowed down within me. So that's what he's done in these first 18 verses. 
He continually remembered his affliction, acknowledged his affliction. But look here in verse 21. My soul continually remembers my affliction and is bowed within me, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So notice here, church. His circumstances have not changed. So the cause of his increased hope is not better life circumstances. No, God's people are still in exile, and they will be for quite some time. And the temple in Jerusalem is still destroyed, and it will remain so for quite some time. The tragic circumstances the author is going through have not changed, and yet he's able to say, I have hope. So it's not that We finally conceived a child, therefore I have hope. I finally got my job, therefore I have hope. My sickness was finally healed, therefore I have hope. No, he is in the middle of his mercy. He is in the middle of his misery still, and he finds hope. And you saw what was there in verses 21 through 24 that happened. He calls to mind certain truths about who God is and who God is to him. That's the difference maker. It's not that he got changed circumstances. It's that he calls to mind unchanging truths about God. Our circumstances will change for better, for worse, but there are some timeless, changeless, eternal truths about God that can anchor us through it all, keeping us humble in the good times and keeping us hopeful in the bad times. And what a beautiful set of verses. This I call to mind, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. So these are the verses that you plaster on the wall of your home real pretty, right? Powerful, encouraging words. The rest of Lamentations, pretty dark, pretty tough. But verses 21 through 24 are a bright star against the backdrop of a dark night. And these verses, very importantly, these verses echo an earlier passage from the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34, verses six through seven. Very important verses used throughout the Old Testament, but the first time we see them is in Exodus chapter 34. So if you remember, during that time, Moses was leading God's people out of Egypt into the promised land, and they were getting close, but it was a tough time for Moses in Exodus 34. He had just broken the original tablets with the Ten Commandments on them because he was so angry at God's people for their idolatry, and Moses is wondering, like, God, 
Are you going to abandon us? God, are you going to back out on your covenant with us? Because I just broke the covenant documents. And we've certainly not upheld our end of our covenant vows to you. So that's kind of what's going on in Moses' head. And in Exodus chapter 34, we're told the glory of the Lord passes by Moses and God speaks these words to Moses about himself. They say this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And so these words are meant to be a reaffirmation of God's covenant commitment to his people, despite the people's lack of covenant commitment to God. And so they were meant to give Moses hope that all was not lost for Israel, even though Israel was lost. And these verses would be often repeated throughout the Old Testament. So you read the Psalms and many other places. They essentially quote Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. And in Lamentations chapter 3, he's not quite quoting the verses, but he does seem to be reflecting on them, putting them in his own words, pressing them into his heart. And he's doing so for the same reason Moses did. Because all seemed lost for God's people. The covenant promises God made to bless his people and to bless the world through his people, all of that seemed in jeopardy. So the author is remembering who God is, remembering the promises he'd made, that he's loving, that he's merciful, that he's faithful, despite what our circumstances tell us. Go back to 2016, in the middle of that string of job rejections that I shared about before. This was right after the second no that I received. It was a hot summer, and one Sunday, Meg and I left church one Sunday morning, and we got about three quarters of the mile down the road when we quickly realized that our back right tire had gone totally flat in just that short distance. So the toddlers are whining, ready for their nap, Meg and I are fighting, both deeply annoyed at this situation. Everybody's sweating because it's summer in Kentucky. But I do what I got to do, grab the tools, crawl under the car, in my church clothes to set the lift in the right place. And it's as I'm lying on this dirty asphalt of this gas station to set the lift, and what I want to say, God spoke to me. It's the only way I know how to put it. Because in that moment, these words were deeply impressed upon my mind. And it was this. I am not going to let you find your joy in anything else but me. I am not going to let you find your joy in anything else but me. And here's how I interpreted that God speaking to me moment. CT, I'm not going to let you find your joy in your job. I'm not going to let you find your joy in ministry. I'm not going to let you find your joy in any of your circumstances. 
CT, I'm going to teach you true, deep, doesn't matter what your circumstances are, joy. I'm going to teach you to say with the author of Lamentations, the Lord is my portion. Not my job is my portion. Not my money is my portion. Not my health is my portion. The Lord, the unchanging, merciful, loving, promise-making, covenant-keeping Lord is my portion. And therefore, CT, you can have hope. Even as you lie jobless, churchless, Hopeless underneath your tireless car. You can have hope. Brothers and sisters, acknowledge your affliction. We can't skip that step. We can't superficially breeze past the pain. At the same time also, after that, Remember your God. Remember the enduring, unchanging, eternal truth of who God is and who God is for you. He brings joy in the morning. He shows love to the weak. He gives mercy to the brokenhearted. And the clearest expression of God's love and mercy is the fulfillment of his covenant promises in Christ Jesus. We can know God keeps his word because of the word made flesh, Jesus. We know God is working all things, even the bad things. God is working toward the redemption of his people because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. God does not Give up, leading us to repentance and restoring us to himself. He is determined to save us. And his determination took him all the way to the cross. Moses and the author of Lamentations longed to see the day when God's covenant promises would prove true. And what they longed for, we have seen and heard Christ has come, the Spirit has been poured out, and we live with the certainty that God is love. God is merciful, God is faithful forever. Father in heaven, at least some part of our hearts this morning feels gratitude. We are grateful, Lord, that you invite us into honesty. We are grateful, Lord, that you invite us into relationship where we can be who we are, be honest about where we are. God, thank you that you are not afraid of our brokenness. You are not afraid of our sin. You are not afraid of our complaints. You are strong, you are confident, you are loving, even as we bring you our most painful junk. Father, we're thankful. But God, as we bring up some of these stories and they're stirred within our minds and hearts, these end of our rope stories, our hearts are heavy. 
Maybe there's anger, maybe there's sadness, frustration, confusion. Father, we pray that you would teach us how to relate with you. Teach us how to pray to you. Teach us how to share with you in prayer. And God, heal us. Heal us of our hopelessness. Lead us into true, deep, lasting joy and hope because of your presence with us and because of your spirit in us and because of the hope of heaven secured for us by Christ. Do this work in us and do this work for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.